Asanas has some visitors here or a bunch of visitors here. Um, Andre and Bonnie, you guys were... Oh, they were the first couple in our life group that started meeting in, in our home here many years ago. And yeah, we had big plans and then we had one couple that kind of started and we ended up just having dinner together regularly. And uh, I think that was a, a picture of how God would teach us actually how to do church. Because that's us getting together and we, we meet and we're worshiping and we, we're praising God and then we eat together and we, we're practicing. We, we, we say we do life together. And then we're so in a culture that is saturated with our individual lives that we don't. And it is hard to break that. It's hard to break that mindset. It's hard to change that. We carry our own issues and our problems and our struggles. And what I realize is if you get what God wants to say to us today, you will never struggle again. Never. The problem is getting it. And the problem is me communicating it. And because, ah, man, and think about it, I, I think I'm an average preacher, a below average pastor, uh, and many things. But I long to be better. I long to be more like Christ. I long to love you guys in the way that you deserve. I long to sh- represent Christ in, in a way that I can say, actually, follow me as I follow Christ. Because that's all that matters. Yeah. We're going through a series at the moment, which, like I've said, doesn't make sense. It's not the way you divide up a series. You go through, like, generally, you're supposed to either go through topics that correspond to each other and connect to each other or you go through books of the Bible or, or you trust God for a new word every single day, every single time. But God showed me to go through chapters 8 of the Bible and it just feels like, I don't know if I've gone off or I've just gone down. Can you still hear me? Yeah. Um, but I feel God has shown me repeatedly and confirmed it that we are on the right path with this eight series just so happens that when i'm preaching on um matthew 8 i hear two sermons on it and around it and the exact same topic and then when i'm going to preach on mark 8 god is confirming it again at a meeting that i wouldn't have gone to that actually this is what you need to be going through and mark 8 was what prompted this whole series where we're going through eight. If you guys haven't been here, it's just eight, eight, eight. And then I saw this picture that the eight on its side was like a, a lenses. And God's giving us different lenses to help us see church differently, to see life differently, to see each other differently. And we've gone through lenses of truth to actually show us what life is like and to confront us. We were having a discussion last night. And I don't know if you've ever disagreed with people and you think you're always right. And the other person always thinks they're right. And I want to tell you that you all believe that you are right. Because otherwise you wouldn't believe what you believe. Who's sitting here thinking, I believe that I'm wrong, but I still believe it. It's like, what you believe, you believe to be right. The reality is, we need to find a way for us to be built around something that supersedes us, 
so that our views can be challenged. And together, we actually have an authority that's greater than ourselves. And I, I said, we've gone through this, and the authority that's greater than us is God. And then what He has revealed to us through His Word. And then together we find what God has revealed to His church. And actually, when we realize that our views conflict with that, we need to be challenged. And we need to find a way to bring our views in line with what God has said to us. But to do that, we need humility. We need humility to say that, I believe what I believe, but I'm not always right. And so I need to submit to God's word. And I need to find a way that I can do that. And that, where we've had these conflicting visions, where it's like my vision of church, my vision of the way life should be, my vision of the way life is supposed to work. And it's going to differ. But we need to learn to be okay with that difference, but then find a unity around what God is showing us. And together he's going to show us how that is church. I showed you this a couple of weeks ago. Just the hierarchy like of authority in our life. And so much of the temptation in this day and age where we, in our individualistic mindset, it's just a problem of the Western world. Unfortunately, it's the culture we've grown up in. There's beautiful aspects to it where there's individual responsibility and the, the, the reality of that. But there's also the dangers where we put ourselves over everything else. And it's my perspective on church is what counts. My view. We come here and we hold like everything. Oh, I'm going to be the ultimate arbiter of truth. I'm going to test everything. If I agree with it, then I'll take it. What they say is that we don't realize the destruction that COVID has actually had on that. Because so much of our church experience, so much of our life has been separated. Now we get to evaluate everything from around the world we can have the best worship from here we can have the best preach from there and we can like just cultivate our own nice little diet of what we like and we'll come to church and it's like ah it's fine because the coffee's okay and the fellowship's fine but i get my teaching from this this teaching i get my my truth from here i get my worship from somewhere else so i don't really need to be that invested because in a consumeristic world, I come for what's convenient. And you know what? I like being able to sit out on the couch under the gazebo. Or I like getting a seat inside because I can hear a little bit better away from the noisy kids. And The reality is church is messy and it's supposed to be messy because it involves people. And we need to be confronted with a little bit of that. Because what I want to show you today, the lens of Christ... If you had Christ in his rightful place in your life and you were becoming like him, there is nothing you could face that would be a challenge anymore. It's like you would be equipped to handle it. Whatever challenge you go through, it would change your perception of it. As in, you might even get hit by a car, flipped upside down, have a fracture in your skull. And your first thought is, God, what are you doing with this? Not, God, why did you let that happen? That's why Jesus could sleep through the midst of a storm. Because he's like, my father has me. What do you want me to do? Why are you worried? God has you. It's fine. If you've done something wrong, change it. But God will show you that. If you're frustrated with a person next to you, well, what would Christ do in that situation? We used to carry those little bands around. What would Jesus do? 
we mocked it and we joked about it, but the reality is actually that is the best like phrase that you can have. Actually, what would Jesus do in your situation? You've been hurt. You've been like rejected. You've been abused. You've been. What would Jesus do in that situation? He was hurt. He was rejected. He was mocked. He everything, but his heart posture was actually, how do I help these people? How do I take what you are doing, God, and use it for your glory? How do I lay aside my rights for the benefit of those around me? And my whole wrestle today is, how do I open your eyes to this? How do I open your hearts to this? This is not, okay, this is how you get into Christianity. Because the reality is, this mindset is understanding the gospel. It is understanding salvation. It is understanding that actually, I come in via Christ. But even once you're in, you grow into this. By growing into Christ. By growing into the gospel. Because your foundation is not about, okay, God, I'll serve you as long as everything goes fine for me. As long as I don't get cancer. As long as I don't struggle with this. As long as my kids are fine. Because I've done everything right, you must play your part now. Unfortunately, that's not the case. If we orientate our lives and our foundation is the gospel, then it's not about what we deserve. Because we understand what we deserve. And we, our whole posture becomes grace. Our whole posture becomes gratitude for what we have been given. And then we look at everybody around us with more grace. Because instead of saying like, oh, how do they do that? Why do they do that? Why do those people keep acting like that? We actually realize, man, they're just blind. They haven't seen yet. And your posture becomes actually not, oh, how dare they do that? How dare my neighbors play music loud like us? Actually, they don't see. And then all of the offensive things they do, you can actually turn into compassion because it's like, actually, they don't know yet. They haven't seen they don't know God the way that you do. So, let's read some Bible. So, we're going to go through Mark 8. Actually, I'm going to give you a little bit of background. Once again, this is the Bible project like summary. I can't go through the whole thing. But if you really want to understand it, it's an eight-minute video that kind of explains the whole of the book of Mark. gives you a good framework on how to approach it. So, Mark is written basically to Rome. It's actually almost, they, they assume it's Peter's gospel. Fed through like Mark, John Mark, if you've read Acts, he's the author of it, but he's writing to Gentiles. So he's writing to people that are like in a sense far from God, but now are coming into this. So it's not a Jewish letter. It's not a very Jewish letter. Remember we saw Matthew, he actually quotes from the Old Testament to connect like the Old Testament to the New Testament. This is short, it's punchy, it's like, actually I want to give you this simple story and I want you to go out from here. So the whole story is what Jesus, who Jesus is, what we must do with it and then where do we go? Like how he actually became king. To understand that, um, so Mark 8 is all centered around this area. And one of the things we all look at is it's like, I don't know if you've read that verse where Jesus' brothers say to him, it's like, well, why don't you go to Jerusalem? If you want to be king, if you want to be this famous person, go and make yourself known. We think like if, if we had a strategy on how to change the world, 
What do you do? You want to get as many followers as you can. You want to get as many people on board with it. You want to look as impressive as what you can. Jesus' strategy was very different to that. Um, actually, let's go. So this one. So Jerusalem is down here. Nazareth is all the way up there. You can see these like green areas. This is where Pontius Pilate was in charge. Up there is actually where Herod was in charge. So Jesus wasn't an idiot. He was actually very clever. When he came onto the scene, he came onto the scene in Jerusalem and he started causing quite a stir. And people were looking at him and like, wow, you, you seem to be saying you're the Messiah. You seem to be saying you're actually king. And it's like if he had stayed there, I think he would have been under a lot of threat a lot sooner. So he removed himself from there and he went up to Nazareth. And he got himself out of almost the firing line and he started ministering to people in the, in the quiet. And there's something about God's strategy where it's like, I want to work with you in secret and prepare you first until everybody's actually ready. I want to give you time to prepare your disciples before you go to the cross. And then the amazing thing is not only that, is he starts in Nazareth and then he has trips into surrounding areas. Not even into Israel. In Mark, Mark 7, he actually goes into Tyre and Sidon. This is like us walking all the way to like Joburg. It's like basically you walk from here, it's like walking as far as like Soweto. He's like, he's taking this journey to go out of his way to actually to minister to areas that is different to where he's from. And if you understand the stories, that's what he does. He, he separates himself and then he goes on like missionary journeys where he starts by ministering around Capernaum. And then he goes further and he goes out and he goes down and he actually comes down here. You can kind of see this journey is what we're going to read through now. So Mark 8 says, During those days, another large crowd gathered. Since they had nothing to eat, Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion for these people. They have already been with me three days and they have nothing to eat. If I send them home hungry, they will collapse on the way because some of them have come a long distance. Now this is in the area here. It's not where his Jewish followers would be. It's probably in a similar area to where he cast out the demon out of the guy and the pigs ran in. So it's like that guy that was transformed, they, they say, like, I wonder if he went around telling people about what Jesus did. Because a crowd of 4,000 people gathered to be with him. If you've ever seen like the feeding of 5,000 and now we're going to read the feeding of 4,000. It's actually, he did it twice. He did it once in, Jerusalem, in Israel and then once on the other side. Once he went to the people that weren't his people and he actually fed them. So he said, the disciples answered, but where in this remote place can anyone get enough bread to feed them? How many loaves do you have? Jesus asked. Seven, they replied. He told the crowd to sit down on the ground. When he had taken the seven loaves and given thanks, he broke them, gave them to his disciples, and set before the people as they did, and they did so. They had a few, uh, few small fish as well. He gave thanks for them also and told the disciples to distribute them. The people ate and were satisfied. Afterwards, the disciples picked up seven basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. About 4,000 men were present. And having sent them away, he got into the boats with his disciples and went to the region of Dalmanutha. So like I said, we've 
We've already seen he's actually fed 5,000. Now he's feeding 4,000. He used to, like he fed Jews. Now he's feeding Gentiles. When he fed the Jews, there were 12 baskets left over. There's a picture of the 12 tribes. There's a picture of the completeness of the provision that was there. And then he feeds um, the 4,000 and starts off with seven loaves and there's seven baskets left over. Because one of the things they say is this is probably land that was populated by seven nations that were Canaan originally. Like the, the, the Canaanites like were the guys that were removed out of Israel like that were, when they took the land. And there's something of the people that were removed from it and there's a completeness to the provision even afterwards. And yet, Jesus does a miracle like this of feeding 4,000 people. And it's not the point of the story. And he goes on. The Pharisees came and began to question Jesus to test him. And they asked him for a sign from heaven. He sighed deeply and said, why does this generation ask for a miraculous sign? I tell you the truth, no sign will be given to it. If you read that in Matthew, he says, no sign will be given to it except for the sign of Jonah. Then he left them, got back into the boat and crossed over to the other side. Thought like, that's incredible. He's like, no sign will be given to you except the sign of Jonah. He gets into a boat and he goes. He's like, the one sign of Jonah was actually that he's going to be buried. He's going to be in a fish for three days and then come back to life. That's the picture that Jesus says. That's the one sign I'll give you. But, yeah. The disciples had forgotten to bring bread. uh, Except for one loaf they had with them in the boat. Be careful, Jesus warned. Watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and that of Herod. They discussed this with one another and said, It is because we have no bread. Aware of their discussion, Jesus asked them, Why are you talking about having no bread? Do you still not see or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Do you have eyes but fail to see and ears but fail to hear? And do you remember? And don't you remember? When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets of pieces did you pick up? Twelve, they replied. And when I broke the seven loaves for the 4,000, how many baskets of pieces did you pick up? Seven, they said. He said to them, do you still not understand? It's like, I've provided for 5,000 people and 4,000 people. And then I'm like, be careful of the yeast of the Pharisees and Herod. It's like, oh man, we forgot to bring bread. He's worried about providing for us. He's trying to get hold of their hearts. And God's trying to get hold of your hearts and he's trying to open up the hearts and trying to let you see what's actually there. They came to Bethesda or Bethsaida and some people brought a blind man and begged Jesus to touch him. He took the blind man by the hand and led him outside the village. When he had spit on the man's eyes and put his hands on him, Jesus asked, do you see anything? He looked up and said, I see people. They look like trees walking around. Once more, Jesus put his hands on the man's eyes. Then his eyes were opened. His sight was restored and he saw everything clearly. Jesus sends him home saying, don't go into the village. So like, if you've ever prayed for somebody and they not get healed, you're not alone. Jesus tried and couldn't heal this guy. No, the whole picture is exactly, he's showing them physically with healing. That actually you can bring healing, but you still don't see People sitting in church and it's like, man, do you see who Jesus is? Yes, I see. But then we still get concerned about the things in this life. We're sitting here with like a half healing, with half of our eyesight. And this whole series is, I think, God saying, do you see? 
or you still see men walking around like trees? Do you really see what I'm doing in the world? Or are you still concerned about the here and now? Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, who do people say that I am? I'll show you here. Caesarea Philippi, on the top right there, Panea. The whole thing is Caesarea, was, Caesarea Philippi is actually named after Caesar and Philip. It's the son of Herod. He's one of the rulers here. So you can see these like pink and yellow and green lines. Or It's all the political divisions. And Jesus is coming in, into this context and saying, who do people say that I am? You've seen this guy try to set it up that he's honoring Caesar and he's honoring himself by naming the city after himself. And Jesus walks into that context and it's like, who do people really say that I am? Who's in charge of the world? Who's in control? Who holds all the power? We look here and we're blaming government and we blame the world and we're worried about like the World Economic Forum and everybody's trying to grab hold of power and trying to change the world and trying to figure out what to do. And then people are like rising up and we want to have Bitcoin that like is removed from all sorts of power so we can completely be independent. And it's like, that's never really worked well for people. Um, but everybody's worried. We're trying to find control. And Jesus steps into that situation and says, who do people say that I am? Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. But what about you? He asked, who do you say I am? Peter answered, you are the Christ. Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and the teachers of the law. The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers, the experts in the law. The people that were supposed to be the experts, the people that were supposed to be watching over the people are the ones that are going to reject Jesus, even though he came as the ultimate fulfillment of what they were looking for. I don't know if you guys have watched The Chosen at all, but I mean, they take some poetic license with some things, but some of it is incredible where he stands up and Jesus basically declares that he's the Messiah. And you realize how offensive that actually was to people. Because they had set up their whole society around being the chosen people. And we are right. And we just have to get it right enough. And then we'll be saved and we'll be good. And then he steps into that and says, actually, you've missed it, basically. I'm the one you're supposed to be looking for. And you realize how offensive that would have actually been to his own, like his own family, his own friends, the people he's grown up with. The town he grew up in, it was probably about 500 people. So everybody knew him. And these were his family, his friends, the people he had done life with for 30 years. And they reject him. How would you feel if that was the case? Like, I think we gloss over that sometimes. Like, oh, he was rejected. It's fine. He was supposed to be rejected. Have you ever felt rejected? Have you ever been rejected by the people that were supposed to be the ones that loved you? Abandoned, like overlooked. Jesus knows exactly what that feels like. Rejected by the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Peter didn't really see. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan. 
He said, you do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. I think, unfortunately, we still operate like Peter. That it's like, God challenges us and he says, you're going to have to go through some things. Because you're going to have to learn. And you're going to have to use these things for my good, for your good, for my glory. And you say, no, Jesus, let's do it this way. We don't have to suffer. We don't have to go through hard things. We don't have to quite do it the way of Christ. We want to do it our own way. And then we will change the world. And he's saying, you don't have the things of God on your heart. Actually, you're thinking in the same way as the world. And he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, If anyone come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for the gospel will save it. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world, yet forfeit his soul? What can a man give in exchange for his soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in the Father's glory with the holy angels. And he said to them, I tell you the truth, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God come with power. So the kingdom coming must have happened in that generation. This Jesus coming into glory happened in that generation. Because it was when Jesus was anointed king, when he came into his glory, when he stepped into heaven as the king over everything. That's who Jesus is. He's reigning in glory in heaven. He is in control. But as we've seen, the kingdom is coming, but we don't see it in its fullness at the moment. I'm going to go back to just highlight three passages or three verses in this passage. Watch out. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. I always read that. Watch out for the leaven of the Pharisees. For some reason, I never read leaven of Herod. And what Jesus is doing there is he's showing you the two ways that you can basically approach life. One is the leaven of the Pharisees. It's the way of the Pharisees. So I'm going to do everything right. I'm going to test everything, make sure I'm on the good side, because then God is in my debt. Then I've got some leverage over him to say that I'm entitled for everything in my life to go the way that I want it. I'm going to force God's hand to get the kingdom of heaven in my life by doing everything right. It is religion. And then you've got Herod. Herod used all the levers that he could for power to get in control. He compromised his values. He compromised everything to be like a, a vassal state of Rome that basically everybody hated, but he had all the power. So we compromise our values. We don't do everything right. We just say, man, the world is broken, so I'm going to do whatever it takes to succeed because then I'm going to be in control. And I basically, I don't need God. So I'm going to live however I want. The reality is Jesus says, be careful of this way of life. The leaven, the sin of Pharisees. Leaven is always used as an illustration of sin because it lies there hidden in the bread. You can't see it, but it spreads. 
and it spreads and it spreads and it spreads and it eventually affects everything and infects everything. And there's a picture of that in our sin. It's like it lies and it's hidden. Our sin may be that you're tempted to try and be good. And it doesn't seem like a sin, but it is. Because it's the sin of pride. It's the sin of arrogance. It's the sin of, I don't need this anymore. I believe that when I got in, I, I said I repent, but now I'm a good person. Now, God, I'm on your side. Now everything should go right. The reality is how we grow in the Christian life is called discipleship. That's how we actually become more like Christ. And we don't do it by working really hard and doing all the right things. We do it by growing in our understanding of the way of Christ. Understanding that actually we need to grow into his Christ-likeness. And Jesus gave us the way to do that. If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, pick up his cross, and follow me. Unfortunately, there's only the way of Christ and the way of the world. We can either pick up our cross, take what God has given us, the struggles, the strain, the sacrifice that he's given us to take, to follow him, to serve him. Or we're trying to say, "Ah, I want one foot in with Christ and I want one foot in with the world. Because I want to get to heaven, but ah, the ways of the world are fun and it's exciting and it's a bit more tempting to, to pursue money and success and power and do whatever I can to get my like, retirement saving done and my economy like is set up and my own little empire. I don't know if I want to go too far down this road. You know that usury used to be a sin. It used to be viewed as a sin. Do you even know what usury is? It's charging interest. And it used to be a, a sin to charge people interest in church. Because the whole thing comes back to the laws in Leviticus, where it's like, actually, if one of your brothers has gotten, like, they've made bad choices, and they end up having to sell their, their farm to you, their, their land to you, and you come in and you, you've done well, you've got capital, I'm going to buy their farm, and I'm going to expand my empire. And then, but the whole thing was that, Land's value was calculated based on the, the length of time until the year of Jubilee, until it was given back to them to try and have another fresh start. And the whole system was put in place so that you couldn't have anybody that got to a point where they were so dominant that they would use the capital they got to abuse those that made mistakes and made mistakes and made mistakes. It didn't take away responsibility, but it was a system designed to look after those that were like poor. Now, nowadays, it's what is it? Build up your property portfolio. The more money you got, the more capital you got, you can buy multiple properties so that I can charge interest and I can charge rent and I can charge based on the capital I've got. I'm going to use it to almost exploit those that don't have the same capital I've got. It is a very complex thing on how to connect it with our capital system and like how we actually grow, but there's something in there of... I think we've bought into the, the ideal of capitalism too much. That just because you're making good choices doesn't mean you're using everything you've got for the benefit of the community around you. Yeah. I see people, <coughs> but they look like trees walking. 
was praying for today, and I think God wants to open eyes. He wants to open your eyes. He wants to open your eyes to what's possible. Lord, I ask that you'd you'd come and open eyes, open our hearts to what you are doing. Let us see the world differently. Let us see each other differently. Let us see what you are doing, Lord. Let us see who you are. Who do people say that I am? You are Jesus. You are the Christ. You are the one we've been waiting for. Let us not look for any other saviors. Let us not look for anything else to satisfy. Let us not look for anything else to solve our problems. But let us truly put you at the top of our lives, at the bottom of our lives. Let it be built upon you. Let it be aiming at you. Transform our value system, Lord. People always tell me that I'm too intense when I preach or too challenging. And everything in me, like, God, give me a, a clever way to just set up the story. Let us set up like this, almost like this little bait and switch. I think we've tried to perfect that in church where it's like you've got this perfect marketing system where if I can entertain you enough and make it convenient enough, comfortable enough to come into church to say, yes, I want that life. And then you kind of like get surprised that it's like, oh man, I could take the, Jesus is good. He's nice. Like he's really cool. And coffee's pretty good. And like church is quite fun. And there's a benefit to like this community thing that it's like, oh, we're on this conveyor belt. And without knowing it, we'd actually become really Christ like. I don't know if it works like that. I don't know if that was Jesus' strategy. Jesus' strategy was it's like, man, I healed it. Heal people and say, like, can I follow you? No. Go to your town. Some of the guys said, oh, I want to follow you. It's like, oh, but you're not ready yet. It's like, you still want to look after your family. You still want to like go and bury my father. Just wait. Not, not yet. I'll, I'll do it later. He said, actually, if, you, if you're not willing to stand up for me in front of men, I don't know if I can stand up for you like, in front of God. And that's not because he's not loving. He's, he is faithful. I was reading that 1 Timothy. Oh, 2 Timothy. <laughs> 2 Timothy 2.11. The saying is trustworthy for you. If we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure with him, 
we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. The gospel is this mix of this where there's responsibility for what the part that we play. Yet God is faithful over and above that. That song we sang, he won't fail. He won't. He won't. He won't. He won't fail you. There is nothing that you can trust him with that he won't fail. Like Whatever you're struggling with, whatever you give it to him, he won't fail you. Even when we are faithless, he remains faithful. reason I can be so sure of this is not because I'm right. I'm growing to understand authority in God's truth more and more. Because if God has said it here, I can completely trust it. Not based on my own authority, but I can declare it based on His authority. And what we're talking about here is we're meditating on the gospel. We're trying to understand what is the gospel. The gospel is the good news about who God is. The gospel of God. The gospel of Christ. It's who Jesus is. The gospel of the kingdom. It's about how he's bringing his rule and reign into your life and into our lives and into Pretoria and into South Africa and into the world. We don't see it perfectly, but he is still bringing his kingdom in. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. He teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that, oh, that are his very own, eager to do what is good. He has called us He's called us out of all wickedness to purify us so we would be eager to do good. That's who he's making us. He's cleaning us up. He's purifying us. He's calling us out, setting us up so that actually we'd be eager to do what is right, to do what is good, to play our part in extending the kingdom. And he's trying to open up our eyes to see this. He's giving us a lens of the gospel, the lens of Christ, so we would reinterpret our entire lives through that lens. Lord, I pray that you would come and do far more than what I could do. I pray that you would take anything that I said and rooted in these people's lives, Lord. I pray that you would open their eyes as we take communion just now. Lord, I pray that anybody that's here that has seen a glimpse of your gospel and has always felt removed from it, that they would realize that it is for them. They would make the decision that they need to, to partner with you, to come into you, to believe that this is the truth. Lord, I pray that you would stir up repentance in us. 
a godly repentance that transforms us, that doesn't lead to, to brokenness, but it actually leads to a transformation, an eagerness, a zeal, a, a desire to understand, a desire to have the answers, a desire to have a, a reason for the faith that we have. Lord, I pray that you would open blind eyes today, that you would open eyes that are like grown cold, that have grown closed, that have grown dull. Lord, I pray that you bring healing and transformation. I pray that you would open up hearts today to what you are doing, to your truth, to the gospel, to the salvation, to understand how, what it means to actually set our mind on the things of God, not on the things of the world. We're going to take communion now. I've been trying to understand how discipleship works in church just more and more. Um, and I don't know if you guys have ever heard of, I can't even remember the name now. Um, oh, it's Saddleback Church, I think it is. No, it's not Saddleback. Rick Warren. It's not Rick Warren. What's the other one? Um, Willow Creek. There we go. Little highballs. Back in the day, they was the flagship like mega church, and they were reaching thousands of people and doing the best they could. And they had programs for everything of how their church would work. And they had. I was telling Warren, I, they must have had men's groups and women's groups and cycling groups and crocheting for God. And it's like. Warren's convinced it was the crocheting for Jesus that was changing people's lives. But they had all of these plans and then they, they said like, are we actually making Christ-like disciples? And they did a whole program to try and figure it out, like what was really bringing transformation? Because they wanted people to go from interested in Jesus to like saying yes to Jesus and then growing in Jesus and then actually becoming Christ-like. And they, they positioned these things and they, they investigated all of them and said, look, what actually brings growth? And it was summarized in probably four things. It was actually people knowing their Bible, just engaging regularly with the Bible, engaging regularly in prayer, engaging regularly in fellowship. They had somebody that was ahead of them, somebody that they were partnering with, and then some form of service of actually playing their part in the body. They understood their gifts, they understood where they could add, whether that was serving coffee or whether that was preaching or praying or ministry. And I was just struck that that's exactly what I feel God has shown us to build our church around. Acts 2.42, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, that's the Bible. Breaking of bread, we're actually breaking bread, and we're serving each other to fellowship, to being actually in each other's lives, and to prayer. I'm like, wow, it's almost like God had a plan when he wrote the Bible and showed us what, what these guys were about. It's not a, it's rocket science that I've come up with, but it's these four simple things that we need to put in place. And if you don't have something of those in your life, we have to find a way to put them in place. And the best way to do that is relationally. Where actually, if, you, if you're doing this on your own, find someone to do it with. Reach out. Reach out on the group. Reach out to me. Reach out to Michelle. Reach out to Warren. Reach out to Amy. Reach out to Patrick and Sandy. Somebody. Get somebody that's ahead of you. Somebody that's alongside you. Somebody that you can start investing into. But one of them is the breaking of bread. 
I'm going to take one. Lord, thank you for your body. You said you're not going to give us a sign. That actually, a, like a twisted generation asks for a sign. Except for your death and resurrection. That's a sign enough for us. There's no clever way of proving this to people. Like to, to convince them that this is all true. We have to do it by faith. Lord, we thank you for your body. Thank you for your blood. I pray that you'd open eyes, open hearts. You'd unlock something in our church, in this congregation. Even the churches across the city. Lord, that you'd unlock something of your, just an outpouring of your spirit. To open up our eyes to the truth of the gospel. That it's what transforms our life from beginning to end. Thank you for your body. Thank you for your blood.